0: This is the audio lecture from Module 8, let's get right to it. Chapter 5, Section 1, The Roman World Takes Shape Rome began as a small city in Italy and became a ruler of the Mediterranean and beyond. The story of the Romans and how they built their world empire begins with the land in which they lived. The Italian peninsula is centrally located in the Mediterranean Sea and the city of Rome sits toward the center of Italy. This location would benefit the Romans as they expanded first within Italy and then in the lands bordering the Mediterranean. Because of its geography, Italy proved much easier to unify than Greece. Unlike Greece, Italy is not broken up into small isolated valleys. In addition, the Apennine Mountains, which run down the length of the Italian peninsula, are less rugged than the mountains of Greece. Finally, Italy has broad fertile plains in the north and the west. These plains support the growing population. By about 800 BC, the ancestors of the Romans, called the Latins, migrated into Italy. The Latins settled along the Tiber River in small villages scattered over seven low-lying hills. There, they herded and farmed. Their villages would in time grow together into Rome, the city on seven hills. Legend held that twin brothers, Romulus and Remus, spelled R-O-M-U-L-U-S and R-E-M-U-S, respectively, had founded the city. Romans regarded this tale highly because the twins were said to be sons of a Latin woman and the war god Mars, leading to Romans of divine origin. The Romans shared the Italian peninsula with other peoples. Among them were Greek colonists whose city-states dotted southern Italy and the Etruscans, spelled E-T-R-U-S-C-A-N-S, who lived mostly north of Rome. The origins of the Etruscan civilization are uncertain. One theory says they migrated from Asia Minor, while another suggests they came from the Alps. What is certain is that, for a time, the Etruscans ruled much of central Italy, including Rome itself. The Romans learned much from the Etruscan civilization. They adapted the alphabet that the Etruscans had earlier acquired from the Greeks. The Romans also learned from the Etruscans to use the arch in the construction and they adapted Etruscan engineering techniques to drain the marshy lands along the Tiber, spelled T-I-B-E-R. As well, the Romans adopted some Etruscan gods and goddesses and merged them with Roman deities. The Romans drove out their Etruscan ruler in 509 BC. This date is traditionally considered to mark the founding of the Roman state, which would last for 500 years. The Romans established their state with the form of government called, in Latin, a res publica, spelled R-E-S, new word, P-U-B-L-I-C-A, or that which belongs to the people. In this form of government, which today we call a republic, the people chose some of the officials. A republic, Romans thought, would prevent any individual from gaining too much power. In the early republic, the Senate made the laws and controlled the government. Originally, its 300 members were all patricians, or members of the land-holding upper class, spelled P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-N-S. Each year, the senators nominated two consuls, spelled C-O-N-S-U-L-S, from the patrician class. Their job was to supervise the business of government and command the armies. Consuls, however, could serve only one term. They were also expected to approve each other's decisions. By limiting their time in office and making them responsible to each other, Rome had a system of checks on the power of government. In the event of war, the Senate might choose a dictator or ruler who had complete control over a government. Each Roman dictator was granted power to rule for six months. After that time, he had to give up power. Roman particularly admired Cincinnatus as a model dictator, spelled C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-U-S. Cincinnatus organized an army, led the Romans to victory over the attacking enemy, attended victory celebrations, and returned to his farmlands, all within 15 days. At first, all government officials were patricians. Plebeians, spelled P-L-E-B-E-I-A-N-S, the farmers, merchants, and artisans were made up of the population had the legal rights of citizenship but little influence plebeian demands for power shaped politics in the early republic in time the plebeians gained the right to elect their own officials called tribunes spelled t-r-i-b-u-n-e-s to protect their interests the tribunes could veto V-E-T-O, or block, laws that they felt were harmful to plebeians. Little by little, plebeians forced the Senate to choose plebeians as consuls and to admit plebeians as members of the Senate itself. These changes made Rome's government more democratic. Another breakthrough uh, for the plebeians came in 450 BC, when the government oversaw the inscription of the laws of Rome on 12 tablets, which were set up in the Forum, Rome's Marketplace. Plebeians had protested that citizens could not know what the laws were because they were not written down. The laws of the Twelve Tables made it possible for the first time for plebeians to appeal a judgment handed down by a patrician judge. Although the Senate still dominated the government, the common people had gained access to power and won safeguards for their rights without having to resort to war or revolution. More than 2,000 years later, the framers of the United States Constitution would adapt such Roman ideas as the Senate, the veto, and the checks on political power. Characterizing Roman Society The family was the basic unit of Roman society. Under Roman law, the male head of the household, usually the father, had absolute power in the family. He enforced strict discipline, and demanded total respect for his authority. His wife was subject to his authority, and was not allowed to administer her own affairs. The ideal Roman woman was loving, dutiful, dignified, and strong. Roman women played a larger role in society than did Greek women. They could own property, and in later Roman times, women from all classes ran a variety of businesses, from small shops to major shipyards. Those who made their fortunes earned respect by supporting the arts or paying for public festivals. However, most women worked at home, raising their families, spinning and weaving. Over the centuries, Roman women gained greater freedom and influence. Patrician women went to the public baths, dined out, and attended the theater or other forms of public entertainment with their husbands. Some women, such as Livia and Agrippa the Younger, spelled L-I-V-I-A and A-G-R-I-P-P-I-N-A, respectively, had highly visible public roles and exercised significant political influence. Girls and boys from the upper and lower classes learned to read and write. By the later years of the Republic, many wealthy Romans hired private tutors, often Greeks, to educate their children. Children memorized major events in Roman history. Boys who wanted to pursue political careers studied rhetoric. The Romans believed in numerous gods and goddesses, many of whom they adapted from Greek religion. Roman mythology was also very similar to that of the Greeks. Like the Greek god Zeus, the Roman god Jupiter ruled over the sky and the other gods. According to Roman myths, his wife Juno, like the Greek goddess Hera, protected marriage. Romans also prayed to Neptune, god of the sea, whose powers were the same as those of the Greek god Poseidon. On the battlefield, they turned to Mars, the God of War. The Roman calendar was full of feasts and other celebrations to honor the gods and goddesses and to ensure divine favor for their city. As loyal citizens, most Romans joined in these festivals, which inspired a sense of community. Throughout Rome, dozens of temples housed statues of the gods. In front of these temples, Romans took part in ritual activities such as worshiping the gods and asking for divine assistance. As Rome's political and social systems evolved at home, its armies expanded Roman power across Italy. Roman armies conquered first the Etruscans and then the Greek city-states to the south. By about 270 BC, Rome controlled most of the Italian peninsula. Rome's success was due to skillful diplomacy and its loyal, well-trained army. The basic military unit was the Legion, each of which included about 5,000 men. As in Greeks, Greece Roman armies consisted consisted of citizen soldiers who originally fought without being paid and had to supply their own weapons eventually they received a small stipend or payment uh, but their main compensation was always a share of the spoils of victory Roman citizens often made good soldiers because they were brought up to value loyalty courage and the respect for authority To ensure success, Roman commanders mixed rewards with harsh punishment. Young soldiers who showed courage in action won praise and gifts. If a unit fled from battle, however, one out of every ten men from the disgraced unit was put to death. Rome generally treated its defeated enemies with justice. Conquered peoples had to acknowledge Roman leadership, pay taxes, and supply soldiers for the Roman army. In return, Rome let let them keep their own customs, money, and local government. To a few privileged groups among the conquered people, Rome gave the highly prized right of full citizenship. Others became partial citizens who were allowed to marry Romans and carry on trade in Rome. As a result of such generous policies, most conquered lands remained loyal to Rome, even in troubled times. To protect its conquests, Rome posted soldiers throughout the land. It also built a network of all-weather military roads to link distant territories to Rome. As trade and travel increased, Local peoples incorporated Latin into their languages and adopted many Roman customs and beliefs. Slowly, Italy began to unite under Roman rule. Chapter 5, Section 2, From Republic to Empire After gaining control of the Italian peninsula, Rome began to build an empire around the Mediterranean Sea. This expansion created conflicts in Roman society that weakened and finally crushed the republic. Out of the rubble, however, rose the Roman Empire and a new chapter in Rome's long history. Rome's conquest of the Italian peninsula brought it into contact with Carthage, a city-state on the northern coast of Africa. Settled by Northern Africans and Phoenician traders, Carthage, spelled C-A-R-T-H-A-G-E, ruled over the empire that stretched across North Africa and Western Mediterranean, including parts of Spain. As Rome expanded westward, conflict between these two powers became inevitable. Between 264 BC and 146 BC, Rome fought three wars against Carthage. They are called the Punic Wars, spelled P-U-N-I-C, from Punicus, the Latin word for Phoenician. In the first Punic War, Rome defeated Carthage and won the islands of Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia the Carthaginians sought revenge in the Second Punic War. In 218 BC, the Carthaginian general Hannibal, spelled H-A-N-N-I-B-A-L, led his army, including dozens of war elephants, on an epic march across the Pyrenees, spelled P-Y-R-E-N-E-E-S, through France, and over the Alps into Italy. The trek cost Hannibal one-third of his army, but with it, he surprised the Romans, who had expected an invasion from the south. For 15 years, Hannibal and his army moved across Italy, winning battle after battle. The Carthaginian failed to capture Rome itself, however. In the end, the Romans outflanked Hannibal by sending an army to attack Carthage. Hannibal returned to defend his homeland, where the Romans defeated him at last. Carthage gave up all its lands outside of Africa. Nevertheless, many Romans still saw Carthage as a rival and wanted revenge for the terrible destruction that Hannibal's army had brought to Italy. For years, the senator Cato, Cato ended every speech he made with the words, Carthage must be destroyed. Finally, in the Third Punic War, Rome completely destroyed Carthage. Survivors were killed or sold into slavery. The Romans poured salt over the earth so that nothing would grow there again. The Romans were now masters of the western Mediterranean. The Carthaginians fought for their own preservation and sovereignty of Africa, observed a Greek witness to the fall of Carthage, the Romans for supremacy and world domination. The Romans were committed to a policy of imperialism, or establishing control over foreign lands and peoples. While Rome fought Carthage in the west, it was also expanding into eastern Mediterranean. There, Romans confronted the Hellenistic rulers who had divided up the empire of Alexander the Great. Sometimes to defend Roman interests, sometimes simply for plunder, Rome launched a series of wars in the area. One by one, Macedonia, Greece, and other parts of Asia Minor surrendered and became a Roman province. Other regions, such as Egypt, allied with Rome. By 133 BC, Roman power extended from Spain to Egypt. Truly, the Romans were justified in calling the Mediterranean Sea Mar Nostrum, meaning Our Sea. Conquest and control of busy trade routes brought incredible riches into Rome. Generals, officials, and traders amassed fortunes from loot, taxes, and commerce. A new class of wealthy Romans emerged. They built lavish mansions and filled them with luxuries imported from the east. Wealthy families brought up huge farming estates called Latifundia, spelled L-A-T-I-F-U-N-D-I-A. As Romans conquered more and more lands, they forced people captured in war to work as slaves on the Latifundia. By the last days of the Republic, around a third of Italy's people lived in slavery. The widespread use of slave labor hurt small farmers, who were unable to produce food as cheaply as Latifundia could. The farmers, problems grew when huge quantities of grain pouring in from the conquered lands drove down grain prices. Many farmers fell into debt and had to sell their land. In despair, landless farmers flocked to Rome and other cities looking for jobs. There they joined an already restless class of unemployed people. As the gap between rich and poor widened, angry mobs began to riot. In addition, the new wealth led to increased corruption. Greed and self interest replaced the virtues of the early Republic, such as simplicity, hard work, and devotion to duty. Two young plebeians, brothers named Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, spelled T I B E R I U S and G A I U S, respectively, their last name spelled G R A C C H U S, were among the first to attempt reform. Tiberius, an elected tribune in 133 BC, called on the state to distribute land to poor farmers. Gaius, elected a tribune ten years later, sought a wider range of reforms, including the use of public funds to buy grain to feed the poor. The reforms of the Gracchus brothers angered the Senate, which saw them as a threat to its power. The brothers and thousands of their followers were killed in waves of street violence set off by senators and their hired thugs. Unable to solve its problems peacefully, Rome plunged into a series of civil wars. At issue was who should hold power. The Senate, which wanted to govern as it had in the past, a popular political leader who wanted to weaken the Senate and enact reforms. The turmoil sparked slave uprisings at home and revolts among Rome's allies. Meanwhile, the old legions of Roman citizen soldiers became professional armies whose first loyalty was to their commanders. This often happened because commanders provide them with more benefits, such as parcels of captured land, than the state did. Once rival commanders had their own armies, they could march into Rome to advance their ambitions. Out of this chaos emerged Julius Caesar, an ambitious military commander. For a time Caesar and another brilliant general Pompey, spelled P-O-M-P-E-Y, dominated Roman politics. In 58 BC, Caesar set out with his army to make new conquests. After nine years of fighting, he completed the conquest of Gaul, spelled G-A-U-L, the area that is now France and Belgium. Fearful of Caesar's rising fame, Pompey persuaded the Senate to order Caesar to disband his army and return to Rome. Caesar defied the order. Swiftly and secretly, he led his army across the Rubicon River into northern Italy and headed toward Rome. Once again, civil war erupted across the Roman war. Caesar rushed Pompey and his supporters. He then swept around the Mediterranean, suppressing rebellions. Veni vidi vici, I came, I saw, I conquered, he announced after one victory. Later, returning to Rome, he forced the Senate to make him a dictator. Although he maintained the Senate and other features of the Republic, he was in fact the absolute ruler of Rome. Between 48 BC and 44 BC, Caesar pushed through a number of reforms intended to deal with Rome's many problems. He launched a program of public works to employ the jobless and gave public land to the poor. He also reorganized the government of the provinces and granted Roman citizenship to more people. Caesar's most lasting reform was the introduction of a new calendar based on that of the Egyptians. The Roman calendar, later named the Julian calendar, was used in Western Europe for about 1,600 years. With minor changes, it is still our calendar today. Caesar's enemies worried that the plan to make himself king of Rome would cost them trouble. To save the Republic, they plotted against him. In March of 44 BC, as Caesar arrived in the Senate, his enemies stabbed him to death. The death of Julius Caesar plunged Rome into a new round of civil wars. Mark Antony, Caesar's chief general, and Octavian, spelled O-C-T-A-V-I-A-N, Caesar's grandnephew joined forces to hunt down the murderers. The two men soon quarreled, however, setting off a bitter struggle for power. In 31 BC, Octavian finally defeated Antony and his powerful ally, Queen Cleopatra of Egypt. The Senate gave the triumphant Octavian the title of Augustus, spelled A U G U S T U S, or Exalted One, and declared him princeps, or first citizen. Although he was careful not to call himself king, a title that Romans had hated since Etruscan times, Augustus exercised absolute power and named his successor just as a king would do. Under Augustus, who ruled until 14 AD, the 500-year-old republic came to an end. Romans did not know it at the time, but a new age had dawned, the Age of the Roman Empire. Through firm but moderate policies, Augustus laid the foundation for a stable government. He left the Senate in place and created an efficient, well-trained civil service to enforce its laws. High-level jobs were open to men of talent, regardless of their class. In addition, he cemented the allegiance of cities and provinces to Rome by allowing them a large amount of self-government. Augustus also undertook economic reforms. To make the tax system more fair, he ordered a census, spelled C-E-N-S-U-S, or population count of the empire so there would be records of all who would be taxed. He set up a postal service and issued new coins to make trade easier. He put the jobless to work building roads and temples and sent others to farm the land. The government that Augustus organized functioned well for 200 years, still a serious problem kept arising. Who would rule after an empire died? Romans did not accept the idea of power passing automatically from father to son, and as a result the death of an emperor often led to intrigue and violence. Not all Augustus' successors were great rulers. Some were weak and incompetent. Two early emperors, Caligula, spelled C-A-L-I-G-U-L-A, and Nero, N-E-R-O, were considered evil and perhaps insane. Caligula, for example, appointed his favorite horse as consul. Nero viciously persecuted Christians and was even blamed for setting a great fire that destroyed much of Rome. Between 96 AD and 180 AD, the empire benefited from the rule of a series of good emperors. Hadrian, spelled H-A-D-R-I-A-N, for example, codified Roman law, making it the same for all provinces. He also had soldiers build a wall across Britain to hold back attackers from the non-Roman north. Marcus Aurelius, spelled M-A-R-C-U-S-A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S, who read philosophy while leading wars, was close to being Plato's ideal of a philosopher king. His meditations show his commitment to duty. Hour by hour resolve firmly to do what comes to the hand with correct and natural dignity. End quote. The 200-year span that began with Augustus and ended with Marcus Aurelius is known as the period of the Pax Romana, spelled P-A-X, next word, R-O-M-A-N-A, or Roman Peace, During that time, Roman rule brought peace, order, unity, and prosperity to lands stretching from the Euphrates River in the east to Britain in the west, an area roughly equal in size to the continental United States. During the Pax Romana, Roman legions maintained and protected the roads, and Roman fleets chased pirates from the seas. Trade flowed freely to and from distant lands. Egyptian farmers supplied Romans with grain. From other parts of Africa came ivory and gold, as well as lions and other wild animals to be used for public entertainment. From India came spices, cotton, and precious stones. Trade caravans traveled along the Great Silk Road, bringing silk and other goods from China. People, too, moved easily within the Roman Empire, spreading ideas and knowledge, especially the advances of the Hellenistic East. Throughout the empire, rich and poor alike loved spectacular forms of entertainment, at the Circus Maximus, Rome's largest race course, chariots thundered around an oval course, making dangerously tight turns at either end. Fans bet feverishly on their favorite teams the reds, greens, blues, or whites and successful charioteers were hailed as heroes. Gladiator contests were even more popular. Many gladiators were slaves who had been trained to fight. In the arena, they battled one another either singly or in groups. Crowds cheered. Or, skilled, or a skilled gladiator and a good fighter might even win his freedom. But if a gladiator made a poor showing sometimes the crowd turned their thumbs down, a signal that he should be killed. During Pax Romana, the general prosperity had underlying social and economic problems. To the emperors who paid for them with taxes they collected from the empire, these amusements were a way to pacify the city's restless mobs. In much the same spirit, the governments provided free grain to feed the poor. Critics warned against this policy of bread and circuses, but few listened. Chapter 5, Section 3, The Roman Achievement Through war and conquest, Roman generals carried the achievement of Roman civilization to distant lands. Yet the civilization that developed was not simply Roman. Rather, it blended Greek, Hellenistic, and Roman achievements. In its early days, Rome absorbed ideas from Greek colonists in southern Italy, and it continued to borrow heavily from Greek culture after it conquered Greece. To the Romans, Greek art, literature, philosophy, and scientific genius represented the height of cultural achievement. Their admiration never wavered, leading the Roman poet Horace to note, Greece has conquered her rude conqueror, End quote. The Romans adapted Greek and Hellenistic achievements just as the Greeks had absorbed other ideas from Egypt and the Fertile Crescent. The blending of Greek, Hellenistic, and Roman traditions produced what is known as Greco-Roman civilization. Trade and travel during the Pax Romana helped spread this vital new civilization. In the field of literature, the Romans owed a great debt to the Greeks. Many Romans spoke Greek and imitated Greek styles in prose and poetry. Still, the greatest Roman writers used Latin to create their own literature. In his epic poem, The Aeneid, spelled A-E-N-E-I-D, Virgil, spelled V-I-R-G-I-L, tried to show that Rome's past was as heroic as that of Greece. He linked his epic to Homer's work by telling how Aeneas, A-E-N-E-A-S, escaped from Troy to found Rome. Virgil wrote the Aeneid soon after Augustus came to power. He hoped it would arouse patriotism and helped unite Rome after years of civil wars. Other poets used verse to satirize or make fun of Roman society. Horace's satires were gentle, using playful wit to attack human folly. Those of Juvenal and Martial were more biting. Martial's poem spelled M-A-R-T-I-A-L, for example, were so harsh that he had to use fictitious names to protect himself from retribution. Roman historians pursued their own theme, the rise and fall of Roman power. Like the poet Virgil, the historian Levi sought to arouse patriotic feeling and restore traditional Roman virtues by recalling images of Rome's heroic past. In his history of Rome, Livy recounted tales of great heroes such as Horatius and Cincinnatus. Another historian, Tacitus, spelled T-A-C-I-T-U-S, wrote bitterly about Augustus and his successors, who he felt had destroyed Roman liberty. He admired the simple culture of the Germans who lived on the Rome's northern frontier and would later invade the empire. Romans borrowed much of their philosophy from the Greeks. The Hellenistic philosophy of Stoicism impressed Roman thinkers such as the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Stoics stressed the importance of duty and acceptance of one's fate. They also showed concern for the well-being of all people, an idea that will be reflected in the Christian teachings I will speak about later on. To a large degree, Roman art and architecture were based on Greek and Etruscan models. However, as with literature, the Romans made adaptions to develop their own style. Like the Greeks before them, Roman sculptures stressed realism, portraying their subjects with very wart and vain in place. The Romans also broke new ground by focusing on revealing an individual's character. A statue of a soldier, a writer, or an emperor might capture an expression of smugness, discontent, or haughty pride. Some Roman sculpture, however, was idealistic. For example, sculptors transformed Augustus, who was neither handsome, handsome nor imposing, into a symbol of power and leadership. Romans used works of art to beautify their homes. Examples of these works were preserved in Pompeii, spelled P-O-M-P-E-I-I, a city buried by the volcanic eruption of Mount uh, Vesuvius, spelled V-E-S-U-V-I-U-S, in A.D. 79. Artists depicted scenes from Roman literature and daily life in splendid frescoes and mosaics. A mosaic, spelled M-O-S-A-I-C, is a picture made from chips of colored stone or glass. While the Greeks aimed for simple elegance in architecture, the Romans emphasized grandeur. Immense palaces, temples, and stadiums stood as mighty monuments to Roman power and dignity. The Romans also improved on existing structural devices, such as columns and arches. Utilizing concrete as a building material, they developed the rounded dome as a roof for large spaces. The most famous dome structure is the Pantheon, a temple that honors the many Roman gods. It still stands in Rome today. The Romans excelled in engineering, which is the application of science and mathematics to develop useful structures and machines. Romans engineers built roads, bridges, and harbors throughout the empire. Roman roads were so solidly built that many of them were still used long after the fall of the empire. Roman engineers also built many immense aqueducts, or bridge-like stone structures, that carried water from the hills into Roman cities. This word is spelled A-Q-U-E-D-U-C-T-S. The wealthy had water piped in, and almost every city boasted public baths. Here, people gathered not only to wash themselves, but also to hear the latest news and exchange gossip. The Romans generally left scientific research to the Greeks, Who were by the time citizens of the empire in alexandria egypt hellenistic scientists exchanged ideas freely it was there that the astronomer mathematician ptolemy spelled p-t-o-l-e-m-y proposed his theory that the earth was the center of the universe a mistaken idea that was accepted in the western world for nearly fifteen hundred years the greek doctor galen spelled g-a-l-e-n advanced the frontiers of medical science by insisting on experiments to prove a conclusion. Galen compiled a medical encyclopedia summarizing what was known in the field for the time. It remained a standard text for more than a thousand years to come. Although the Romans did little original research, they did put science to practical use. They applied geography to make maps and medical knowledge to help doctors improve public health. Like Galen, they collected knowledge into encyclopedias. Pliny the Elder P-l-i-n-y, a Roman scientist, compiled volumes on geography, zoology, botany, and other topics, all based on other people's works. Let's justice be done, proclaimed a Roman saying, through the heavens all. Probably the greatest legacy of Rome was its commitment to the rule of law and justice. During the Roman Empire, the rule of law fostered unity and stability. Many centuries later, the principles of Roman law would become the basis for legal systems throughout the world, including that of the United States. During the Republic, Rome developed a system of law, known as the Civil Law, that applied to its citizens. As Rome expanded, however, it ruled many foreigners who were not covered under the Civil Law. Gradually, a second system of law, known as the Law of Nations, emerged. It applied to all people under Roman rule, both citizens and non-citizens. Later, when Rome extended citizenship across the empire, the two systems merged. As Roman law developed, a certain basic principles evolved. Many of these principles are familiar to Americans today. An accused person was presumed innocent until proven guilty. The accused was allowed to face the accuser and offer a defense against the charge. Guilt had to be established clearer than daylight, using solid evidence. Judges were allowed to interpret the laws and were expected to make fair decisions. Penalties, however, varied according to social class and lower class defendants could be treated more harshly.